Stories podcast. Well, hello there. To paraphrase Nate Diaz, surprise, surprise. <laughs> Those of you who know Nate Diaz will understand why I'm only paraphrasing. Today is a bonus episode. We don't usually do 13 in a season. Today we are. I'll start off with a story, I suppose. So, well, it's not so much a story, but the reason I got into travel, one of the big reasons I got into travel was through one book and one man. As I mentioned in this forthcoming interview, it crystallized what I was thinking all along. It made me become the traveler I knew I was. <laughs> you know? So this book, I guess you could say, this book changed my life. And so since the inception of the podcast, I knew that I wanted one man on the show, and it was the author of that book. Today we are talking to the author of that book. It's Rolf Potts, travel writer, obviously, adventurer, teacher, vagabonder, legend. I added the last one on myself. So let's dive into the story from and our interview with Rolf Potts. This is kind of a story about the people you meet when you travel, how counterintuitive it can be and how people you think you're supposed to meet versus the people you sort of dread meeting. A couple months ago, I was traveling in Namibia, which is a place that I had heard about uh, and dreamed of traveling for a long time. I was under-traveled in that southern part of Africa. And I'd heard things about Namibia, about just how isolated it was and how it was sort of a desert country with not a lot of people and just very severe uh, landscapes. Most famously, the, the sand dunes in the Namib desert in the middle of the country, but I was intrigued by the skeleton coast a stretch of coast that goes from the tourist town of Swakopmund, sort of on the, on the middle of the Namibian coast, up to the Angolan border. And the road, as you go north on the skeleton coast, gets more and more, actually I should probably say less and less existent. The more you travel north on the skeleton coast, the less the road is something that you would want to travel on. It basically disappears it's pretty much impossible to drive the Skeleton Coast all the way to the Angolan border. I think first you would have to uh, break the rules. You're not allowed to drive it all the way uh, unless you're a researcher or a military person. And, and second, I think it would be difficult to have enough fuel to go that way, to go all the way. And so, you know, this, this is this desert parched rock strewn stretch of Atlantic coastline. And it has this end of the earth feel. In the 16th century, the Portuguese sailors called it the gates of hell. 
the Namibian Bushmen uh, who lived in the area called the land God made in anger. And so I didn't really expect to see many people out here. And for the most part, I didn't. And, and the tourist attractions aren't attractions by nature of what's there, but what is not there in a sense. The Skeleton Coast is famous for shipwrecks. Uh, and in fact, every shipwreck has its own turnout on the highway. And so you, one of the activities you do on the Skeleton Coast is you drive north, you pull off and you go off and see this uh, this old fishing boat that crashed in the 70s or, or in the 2000s. And there's just sort of this haunted feel where you see this ruin. This ruin after ruin, shipwreck after shipwreck up the coast. And there's a, there's a romantic feel in there where you, there's something about being all alone on this desolate coast and seeing this rotting ship that sort of represents some sort of human failing. And so what was weird for me, I was visiting a ship called the, the Zila. All of these Namibian guys ran out and tried to sell me polished rocks. And so here I was trying to have my romantic experience of this other ship, and these guys were trying to sell me souvenirs. And the first few times it happened, I just sort of brushed them off. And I've traveled long enough that I have a pretty good routine of politely but firmly brushing them off. But in this situation, I finally started talking to them. And in a way, they were, they proved themselves much more interesting than, than these shipwrecks on the coast. It's almost as if the, the shipwrecks were magnets for tourists and, and, and the tourists were magnets for these people who weren't from the Skeleton Coast. They're actually Damara tribesmen from the mountains about six hours away. And they're herdsmen, and they're wearing sweaters and t-shirts when I met them. But when they go back to their village, they wear cowskins, and uh, they live a pastoral existence. And they, they basically sell polished rocks to tourists to make a living. And it was just so interesting that Instead of trying to imagine humanity uh, on this shipwreck, I suddenly had humanity in my face. At first it was annoying, but then I met this guy. One guy was named Johannes, another guy was named Christopher, this woman was called Anna. And we had this great conversation that suddenly I had a window not into this coast of, of, of loss and shipwrecks, but this, these little human connections. And, and so they, uh, they spoke great English, they were really friendly. I learned about their economy, uh, sort of their rock economy. And they invited me back to their village about six hours inland to go hang out with them on the flip side of their life, not as uh, blue jeans wearing rock vendors, but as cowskin wearing uh, herdsmen who were raising their kids and, and, and just sort of living you know, just good, serious-minded, uh, ideal-driven human lives, even though not in a conventional middle-class way. And one thing I regret is not having the time to do that. I was sort of bound by my itinerary. I had to leave the country in a couple of days. But I like to think that eventually, someday, I can go back. And because I started talking to these rock vendors, I can go to this village inland and see a part of Namibia that I 
hadn't dreamed of until I turned away from a shipwreck and started talking to a person. Hey guys, Hayden here. Just a quick one. Firstly, thank you so much for listening to this episode and to the show in general. We really appreciate you guys. It's awesome. Secondly, this is the end of season five. This is the final episode. Season six will be quite a bit different. Now, I want to tell you all about it. We'll tell you about it next week in the unpacking episode, which, man, those episodes are always so much fun. So next week, we'll let you know. Anyway, I've got to go. I've got to try and write a joke for the end of this. Should I go pun or rip off Monty Python? a message directly for you from a former guest on the show, which is, the message reads, remember that time that Juliana Deva beat you in a dance-off in Paris? That's the message. (laughs) (laughs) That's for you. She was on here. She was bragging, man. She was bragging. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, I think Juliana Deva was the the judge as well as the contestant in that dance-off, but... (laughs) Uh, I don't know if I could, I could presume to, uh, to dance better than Juliana Dever or, or even just sort of the, the exuberance she brings to the dance floor. Um, I mean, there's an extent to which that I wasn't really prepared for the dance off itself. So I will, I will, uh, I will give bragging rights to her. Ah, nice. Not even any excuses. I love it, man. I love it. No, no excuses. And I, I don't even want to rematch. I'll just give it to her. Nice. She won. Ah, she'll be happy to hear that. She'll be happy to hear that. (laughs) Now, man, I first read Vagabonding when I was in, I'm sure you're tired of hearing these stories. I first read Vagabonding when I was, but I I first read Vagabonding when I was in Australia, having Mm -hmm. traveled quite a bit. I toured the country a few times and I was kind of unknowingly slipping into what I would refer to with no judgment as a domesticated life. And actually, I listened to the audiobook whilst I was driving around Melbourne being a man with a van, right? And Mm -hmm. this happens on the show a lot, actually, where all these things that I think, but have never spoken or written or formulated into into a true thought are kind of crystallized in front of me. And that's what the book did for me. Instead of giving me information to make me think a certain way, it allowed me to become who I was all along, as cheesy as that sounds. For that, firstly, I'd like to thank you. That's, yeah, thank you so much for that. And secondly, I think that's kind of a good analog for travel, how it maybe doesn't change you, but more allows you to be the more authentic you. What do you think about that? That's a good way of thinking of it, I think. That, that um, I think there's so many, well, first off, actually, I don't get tired of people telling me their vagabonding stories. I was just, I was just uh, speaking at an event in Boise, Idaho, and uh, gosh, I've been doing this for 14 years now since the book came out. Has it been 14? It's been 14 mm, years. 2003. Uh, yeah. um, but I love it. Yeah, no, it's exciting. You know, cause I, cause I remember those moments in my own life where really, I mean, I, I think there's so much, there's prescribed ways of living and, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, normal domestic life has prescribed ways of, of being in the world cause it makes life more efficient and it helps you interact in the environment of home. But yeah, I, I, th- I think travel helps you recognize parts of yourself and it even helps you t- test out parts of yourself, you know, that maybe there's a trial and error part of this, that you don't just sort of walk into who you are, but you stumble into who you are through travel. And that actually makes it even more interesting. 
Yes, man. And there's that thing about how when you're traveling, especially traveling solo, if you're if you're with people, you know, back home or even when you're traveling, you kind of change not to not to fit or mold yourself to those people. But you do change, I find, around people. But when you're by yourself, there's a something. In fact, did I make this quote or did I steal this quote? But it's who are you when no one's around? I hope I made that quote because I want to quote, quote myself there. But yeah, who are you when you're around? And I think is that that's got to be the most authentic you, right? And is there, is there any better way than being in a place you've never been before with no one you know there to find that authentic you? Yeah, no, it's a great it's a great way to um to to just get out of those protective patterns of home. And again, t- test yourself out and I think not only are you discovering new parts of yourself, you realize that it changes over time. You know, you could go to a to a place again by yourself solo or with another person, but solo is a good example. And uh, you react to it one way when you have when you're early in your travel career. And I think there's so much gratefulness and thankfulness that happens early on in a travel career because there's so many forces, at least in the United States, that are that are you know urging you not to travel. That it's going to be dangerous. That it's going to be financially irresponsible. And then when you go and you start traveling in the long term, and you realize how easy and enjoyable and safe it is, then you're just so grateful that first time around. And I think a lot of it, a lot of that, the, when you are first coming into a new sense of yourself in travel, a lot of it is gratefulness for sort of being able to exercise this part of yourself that isn't beholden to the restrictions of home. And then the more you travel, you sort of discover yourself in other places uh, in new ways. And it's great. It's great. Um, and I think another advantage of travel is that other other people who are traveling are experiencing those same feelings and you end up sort of achieving a camaraderie and intimacy with people on the road that you wouldn't at home you're you're just freer you're less inclined to stay in the same protective conversational patterns and just sort of you know live life more philosophically and adventurously and 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 really think about important parts of who you are instead of just the routinized parts of who you are from day to day you start to see life uh in a big in a big picture picture sense and get a sense for just which values are going to drive your decisions in life mm, absolutely man and then the people that you meet on the road beat you in a dance-off and then it all goes a bit weird mm. so. <laughs> yeah. exactly exactly no i've i've um i've had many travel epiphanies that have involved losing competitions. I remember I was in Cambodia once and I'm like a head taller than everybody in Cambodia. And I got roped into this volleyball game and just got destroyed. I mean, they, the team in this village where I was, um, they thought I was a ringer and within five minutes, they just didn't even want me within sight of them. And I'm, I'm not a bad athlete. It's just that I just, there was, there was no sync. And these guys obviously were really good. They played every day. And I like, you know, hitting a ball around uh, on the beach as much as I like an informal dance off. But <laughs> uh, uh, so, no, I've had some fun travel experiences uh, that have involved, uh, you know, losing or uh, or not quite winning. And uh, yeah, Ju- Juliana has has much more uh, experience in, in dance off competitions than me. So, <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, so it's kind of fair. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> so uh, I, I love the idea as well of of just you being there with a bunch of Cambodians, you were head taller than the rest of them and you being invited into the game. And it kind of makes me think of the, 
of the saying yes to things, right? And I, I was kind of always of the opinion of when you can, you should say yes to almost everything. But then I was talking to someone, I can't remember who it was, but I was talking to someone and they, they were saying about analyzing the reasons that you would like to say no or that you are thinking about saying no and then using those reasons to see whether yes would be a good idea. Does any of this make sense? And what are your thoughts on saying yes to things? Yeah, I never thought of it quite in in those terms. That's a very yeah, that's a very close focus uh, take on the on the saying yes situation. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, I think I'm I'm naturally a bit of an introvert, you know, and so travel forces me to be more extroverted. It forces me into interactions that I might not normally have, and that's not. I mean, it's not like I traveled for a few years and then came home and I was an extrovert. You know, I fall back into those into the same social patterns. And in a way, it's easier to be more interactive and to say yes to certain moments when I am traveling. I don't know if I ever thought of it in in that analytical term or maybe I maybe that's something that I pre thought. I think this goes back to to when I was a little kid, you know, um, and just sort of thinking in terms of, well, how if I'm intimidated by something, well, how is it really going to change my life? Is is it is is something what's the worst that could happen sort of thing. So mm. I think uh, that sort of that simplistic kid way of thinking still drives my say yes impulses. Um, and in, in the volleyball situation, you know, I just thought, oh, okay, well, this is just a fun game of volleyball and we'll all goof around. And, and these guys were serious, you know, it, it was, um, I said yes to something that uh, was interesting for me, but not in the best interest of this team that, that thought I was a ringer. And that's, I mean, there's, there's a thousand different iterations of that say yes moment on the road. And I think there's times to be careful too. You know, mm. um, there was a time I've, I've been pretty lucky in terms of travel safety, but years ago I was traveling in Istanbul. Actually, this story appears in my second book, Marco Polo didn't go there. And I befriended these Moroccan guys and they ended up being scam artists. I got drugged, you know, I got a, a sort of a Rahubna type drug and, and robbed um, just because I said yes without really thinking about the complications of that moment. You know, I was in a, I was in a tourist zone in Istanbul. I was in Sultanahmet. I was, uh, approached by these guys. I don't know. There was a lot of red flags there. Uh, and so just blindly saying yes to everything might not be the best way of looking at things, especially in highly touristed areas. I think that there's sort of an, there's a say yes economy that is exploited to an extent by scam type people, I, I, you know, I don't want people to, to be paranoid in, ter- in tourist zones, but the human interactions that happen where a lot of tourists appear, you know, are more likely to, to result in to a trip to somebody's souvenir shop, you know, or uh, a, a sales job type thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with buying things. But um, in, for example, the, uh, the Cambodian village was obviously a place that was so far away from any tourist zone or even any common interaction with tourists that it was an easy place to say yes, that it was obviously a spontaneous human interaction. So, um, yeah, so I'm a huge proponent of the say yes philosophy insofar as that, you, you know, you're careful about things and, and female travelers have a certain set of categories that are different than male travelers. But I think, you know, female travelers just have better instincts for the say yes spontaneity anyway. So, mm, mm, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Isn't it weird how, how the more touristy areas, the places that, the places that you feel like, you know, if you're not in the travel lifestyle, you feel like maybe I'd, I'd probably be, I'd be safer in the touristy areas. Isn't it weird how it's 
the opposite. <laughs> you know, if you're in the middle of nowhere, if you're in the middle of a jungle somewhere, apart from obviously animals, etc., then you're probably more, you're probably safer than if you're in a tourist area. And by safer, like like you say, I mean, I don't mean like something terrible is going to happen, but exactly like you were saying, you know, little robin stuff like that. You know, it's more likely to happen in the tourist areas, and it's kind of it kind of goes against what we think when we're younger. And that's also yeah. something I wanted to talk about. When you were younger, I know that you you had kind of unconsciously, as as all of us do, adopted the idea that travel was for when you're older. You've put your time in, retirement, and you might be able to do the things you want to do then. But something happened with your grandparents to change this view. And for the listeners, what was that shift in mindset and how did it affect you? Well, this is another one of those prescribed uh, American ideas that, you, that the time for enjoying your life and taking time off is is after you've worked your career. And this this is changing a little bit. I think uh, in in the internet era, there's less there's ways to find out about alternate ways of of walking through the world. Much more so, you know, I came of age in a, in a pre-internet era and. I was more under the the impression uh, uh, the pressure of these sort of prescribed ways of living, and uh, and so the idea this this old American work ethic idea is that you work hard, you're responsible, you go to school, you you get a job, and then you work your way up, and then eventually you'll retire, and you have all this free time to reward your uh, life of hard work. Well, around the time that I was trying to wrap my head around that, my grandfather was retiring. My he was a farmer here in Kansas with my grandmother, but my grandmother um, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's around that time. And I'm not saying that my grandfather would have traveled the world, but basically, ha- after having farmed and worked really hard since he was about 15 years old, he suddenly had this free time, this supposed free time, but he couldn't really enjoy it because his wife was sick and and, and sort of in... A, a state where she was less and less able to be independent and interact with the world. And he really spent the bulk of his retirement uh, taking care, care of her and staying close to home. And there was something heartbreaking about that because if anybody had deserved his retirement, it was him. And I think in a poignant way, I realized that life was not going to reward me, you know, that, um, uh, you know, I don't know if I could aspire to, to work as hard and be as virtuous as my, as my grandfather. And he didn't get the reward at the end of his life. So I decided that you sort of have to create your own free time. You have to to push off this pressure, which is almost a compulsive pressure, a fear-based pressure, to immediately become this responsible money-earning citizen and see if you can't create your own time. And I was actually pretty nervous about it. I took a year off. After college, I, I spent some time working as a landscaper. I saved some money, and then I spent eight months uh, traveling around the United States and Canada in a van. And I was actually nervous that 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 might that this gap might compromise me somehow, and it and it didn't, and it doesn't. You know that, that there's ways to find that time, and there's no better time to travel than when you're young. But but then I've talked to people in their fifties who are just wrapping their head around it, and they're not young. But it's it's that youthful idea that why not travel when you're fifty two? Why wait till you're sixty five? Uh, and so so this idea one line I have in my book is that vagabonding starts now. Vagabonding starts when you make the decision to do it. There's sort of a, a, a pressure release to that, that even if you can't actually leave your front door with your passport for two or three years, you've made that decision and it's yours. And it just means that you're no longer beholden to that compulsive fear and that and that sort of staying in the daily grind 
sort of compulsion that if it doesn't appeal to you, then why be beholden to it for 40 years and then retire? Why not just create time for it now and, and just sort of reinvent your relationship to work? And, and again, instead of having re- working on received ideas about how you should see work and versus enjoyment of life, uh, then you can just, by traveling the world, seeing how other people live, seeing how other people work, finding your own passions, you know, finding what you really love to do, uh, can you can take that home and reinvent the way you work when you get home. It's We're no longer in this industrial age where you get a job at the factory and stay there your whole life. I mean, even people who don't travel the world are pretty mobile in their, in their profession anyway. And in, and in a sense, you can you can sort of see your vagabonding journey as research for your next job or, or for a more intensified iteration of the job that you already have. So um, anyway, I'm, I'm sort of on a tangent from that person that I was when I was young. But it, the upshot is that I traveled and it, just everything was easier and more accessible and less fraught with existential stakes, or at least bad ones, than I thought it would be. That basically I, I traveled and it just – it allowed me to relax and realize that you can really have a dynamic and interactive life that changes as the chapters uh, move forward. So that was that was exciting for me. That was a, a big turning point in the way I looked at travel. And, and in some ways, I wrote Vagabonding for that younger version of myself. There's a lot of philosophical reassurance and even philosophical urgency in saying that, look, you know, time is is the wealth that you own. Your truest form of wealth is time. And if you're not spending your time in a way that enhances your life, then you should think about ways to manage your money and in, in your time so that you're, you are living in an, an enriching life. Oh, man, absolutely. And please feel free to explore tangents for as long as you like, man. Sure. I've been wanting to hear those tangents for years. So it's all good. Now, that kind of ties to what you were saying about how are there people, some people are waiting for their freedom and using, you know, that labor time thinking I'm going to have that freedom. And it kind of ties in with, with one of the many brilliant pieces of wisdom in the, in, uh, in vagabonding is that freedom is tied to labor, which is true, right? And at first this seems counterintuitive, but when you look into it and think about it, not only is it true, but it can be seen, I think, as beneficial, really beneficial. So, what do you think about this concept even years after you wrote the book? Does it still hold as true as true as ever? It does. It does. And, and I mean, that sounds so foreboding. Freedom is tied to labor, you know. Mm. Uh, but I think, and one of my arguments in the book is that people, they sort of become a little bit discouraged by the idea that there's all this hard work that underscores a trip. But my point is that that's where a lot of the enjoyment of travel comes from, you know, having earned it. I use the example of the, the Trustafarian or the people who sort of have family money to travel. And I, I don't mean this to disparage people who travel on family money, but it almost goes, you know, this being the Travel Stories podcast, it goes back to the idea of narrative, you know, and that conflict is inherent to narrative and not to mean that all work is conflict, but somehow working through that job, earning that money, knowing that that I, I have earned, you know, five days of free time. I have earned this moment on this beach or this mountain. There's this really interesting relationship that makes it so much more satisfying. And I think not all of us are in a position where we can, you know, just take our, our trust fund and travel. Um, we don't all have a chance to win the lottery. Um, but as I say in the book, you know, we're, we're all born with winning tickets if we actualize our time wealth. And, and so 
I worked some jobs that were not always super enjoyable in my early travel writing career, uh, one of which was landscaping, which could be fine. Um, but when I was mowing a lawn in, uh, you know, Seattle in a pouring, in the pouring rain, uh, I could just sort of think ahead to this awesome USA road trip that I would eventually have. And then when I was teaching English in Korea, which was an interesting and very key experience, sometimes that was a real grind. But I just I could I could sort of imagine the, the work was made even when the work was drudgery and less meaningful than I would like it. I, I knew that I was earning my freedom to have these awesome travel experiences. Mm, yeah, earning the freedom is it. Well, it uh, obviously ties back into freedom is tied to labor, and that's. Man, it is really is so true. And the first time you hear it, you go, oh, no, freedom is tied to labor. Oh, no, where's my freedom gone? But it's it's the earning. And when you're doing those things, when you're in a factory, where whatever you're doing, kind of having that springing your mind forward into what this is going to earn me in a way, I think is beneficial. And with travel content as well, like this podcast and like books and everything, we find that people... People live vicariously through the stories a lot of the times, the anecdotes, the experiences of others. And I think it's good to a point. But as you say in the book, as I say again, don't live vicariously. This is your life. So here's a bit of a practical question. After someone finishes listening to this, maybe picks up their phone, heads to their computer, whatever they're doing, what is the absolute first thing you'd recommend doing to put them on the first step to the path of traveling long-term or traveling at all if they haven't encountered it yet? What's the first thing practically that you think you should do? Just to decide it's going to happen, to stop putting it off, to stop making those excuses, you know, to get a, to get a 2019 calendar and put an X on the day that they're going to leave, you know, Mm. or whenever that is going to happen. Because I think oftentimes we see, and I say this in the book too, is as we see the future as sort of this, this excuse for justifying the present. You know, we sort of think, oh, well, someday, someday I'll be able to do what I dream about doing. And the future is always shifting ahead of us as we move forward in time. The future is always there. And all too often, our dreams, be it travel or or, or otherwise, they keep shifting into the future with us because we haven't made that decision to be concrete about them. They're still an abstraction. And I think that X on the calendar or just that decision to make it happen, to say, well, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I, I'm going to do it within the next two years. I'm going to, I'm going to call my best friend and, and make them hold me accountable. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to s- start spending an hour a week just sort of looking at maps and, and researching travel ideas online. And that, that preparation and that anticipation becomes a part of the process. And it's actually a lot of pleasure. There's something, especially if you've never done it before, there's never done vagabonding before. Um, there's something really exciting about just looking at the possibilities, you know, and then it ties into the whole labor thing. You just, it, work becomes more enjoyable. It, it seems less like a, uh, a path towards an abstraction. It becomes a path towards a very concrete and wonderful experience that's coming up. So I, I think there's a lot of strategies, which, uh, you know, whoever's listening to this now can make the notion of travel and vagabonding concrete instead of abstract in their future. Um, but if nothing else, just find a, if you have, if you use paper calendars, put an X on there, make a reminder to yourself, stick a note on the wall that says July 31st, 2018 or whatever, and just make that promise to yourself a part of your routine. Have it be something you think about every day and it'll happen. It'll happen. And I think, I think life throws a lot of complications 
I think the more you put it, you know, your travels into the future, the more you're competing with other things that might um, compromise your ability to travel. And so I think if, if, if you can, if within this window in the, of the near future, you can do it, it's just a good idea to try and make it happen, to just sort of push those fears back, turn the abstract idea into a concrete plan and go from there. Oh, absolutely, man. I think if a lot of people are like me, and I think that they are, if something doesn't have a deadline or an end date or something like that, it will go on indefinitely. They will likely mm. never happen. But if you've got that deadline, then I don't know, it's a lot easier to meet a deadline when it actually exists. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Another thing, another thing too, is to find a, a travel partner. When I, my, on my first vagabonding trip, I did much of it with a a friend of mine from college and we would meet once a week just to talk about it and look at maps and stuff. And I think deadlines, you're exactly right, are, are really a great way to force yourself into something. Another one is accountability. And I'm not saying everybody has to travel with a friend to begin with. You, your, your accountable friend could just be someone who, who keeps nudging you and it doesn't necessarily travel with you. But I traveled, most of my first vagabond trip was with other people and I've been mostly a solo traveler since then. And so that's a second strategy. If you, if you think that even the deadline might not quite compel you to travel, um, find someone with the same dreams or just someone who knows you well enough to know how to nudge you in that direction. So. Mm. Oh, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Oh, man, there's so much more we, <laughs> we need to talk about solo travel oh. against traveling with others. There's so many avenues that I want to go down, but we are running out of time. And I greatly appreciate you coming to the show. And of course, vagabonding is not your only piece of work by a long shot. And for focusing mainly on the book that changed my life, I can only apologize. <laughs> so where can our listeners find you and all of your work and what you've got going on at the moment? Well, the best place is, is rolfpots.com, or they could even just Google Rolf and travel, uh, or Rolf Potts, R-O-L-F, um, because my website has a lot of stories. I have a book. My second book is Marco Polo didn't go there, and that collects 20 of, of my best travel stories, for lack of a, of a better word there, and uh, some also an analysis of each of those stories. It's like a little primer on travel writing, because I tell the story, and then I sort of reveal how I told the story, mm. but... Um, if you if you're not quite sold on 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 that notion, uh, a lot of my stories are available online through RolfPotts.com. I have interviews with more than 200 travel writers. Uh, I have links to my blog uh, to a couple blogs. One of which is Vaga Blogging, which has a lot of travel advice on another which is is um, uh, a trip I took around the world with no luggage several years ago. And so there's just there's videos, there's all sorts of information. I mean, I'm on Twitter at, at RolfPotts, Instagram at RolfPotts. Um, but rolfpost.com is the best place to start. And if anybody wants to drop me a line, just there's a contact form there and I'll get back to you eventually if I'm not out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Man, fantastic. I can't wait for people that listen to the show to start their, their well, firstly, their Rolf Potts journey, diving into everything that you've brought out. It is fantastic. And secondly, diving, to, diving into vagabonding as well. So, man, I truly, truly appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, so thank you so much again for coming on the show. It's been absolutely fantastic. My pleasure. My pleasure. Stay inspired by subscribing to Travel Stories Podcast.